welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Stephanie. I'm Laura. I'm out of it today. <laughs> I'm not ready. And that's okay. It is the morning. We have been busy. All I've had today is some iced coffee. And it's almost <laughs> lunchtime. Oh my. I'm ready. Wait, okay, so that... The ad I saw right before we started that I was just cracking up. It's called Surreal Estate, and it's on sci-fi. And it's about this real estate agent who his thing is to basically sell haunted houses and he can communicate with the spirits there. And it looked so ridiculous. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Schitt's Creek. No, I've been meaning to, but I just haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Well, one of the characters, Mutt plays the main real estate broker guy and I just the commercial looked so ridiculous that I laughed when I was watching it so hard that I snorted so that's how I feel about that (laughs) but I'm gonna have to watch it now because I need to know (laughs) I need to know if it's as ridiculous as it looks my guess is yes (laughs) so I I think you went first last time okay so then I would go first this time, I think. Okay. I have it on a spreadsheet, but I did not look at it today. <laughs> so prepared. All right. So I'm going to talk to you about the mine strikes and Italian Hall disaster of 1913. Okay. So before I really get into the specifics of what happened, I want to talk about Calumet, which is where this is all based in. Um, It was originally named Red Jacket. So Calumet is a village in Calumet Township in Houghton County in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, It was once the center of the mining industry of the Upper Peninsula. Uh, Most of that was copper. In 1864, Edwin J. Hulbert discovered a copper-bearing section of what became known as the Calumet Conglomerate of Precambrian Age. That's a long name for some copper mining. Hulbert formed the Hulbert Mining Company in 1864 to acquire the land rights before creating the Calumet Company in 1865. The company spun off the Hecla Company the following year. So from... It's an interesting history about copper mining. So from 1868 through 1886, it was the leading copper producer in the United States. And from 1869 through 1876, the leading copper producer in the world. I did not know that about Michigan. So uh, from 1871 through 1880, Calumet and Hecla turned out more than half the copper produced in the United States, just by itself. In each year, save the one between 1870 and 1901, Calumet and Hecla made most of the copper produced in the Michigan Copper District. So annual copper production from the mines peaked in 1906 at 100 million pounds, then declined to 67 million by 1912 in response to lower prices and dropped to 46 million pounds of copper in the strike year of 1913. So that's where we start. Calumet and Hecla controlled the lives of the miners in the area. The company owned the houses the workers lived in, the stores where they bought supplies, the hospitals where workers were sent when injured in the mines. 
Workers were spending 12 plus hours a day in the mine shafts, often missing the sun for days at a time in the winter when the days were shorter. In July 1913, the Western Federation of Miners called a general strike against all mines in the Michigan Copper Country. Strikers were looking for eight-hour days, wanting to go from $2.50 a day to at least $3 a day. And when I looked, uh, that's about $82 in today's money after adjusted for inflation. And then they also wanted to join the child labor movement. So, <laughs> you know, not having children work. Terrible thing they're striking for then. Um, another demand was to end the dangerous practice that was created to save money, which took a two-man drill down to one. This meant that if something happened and you were by yourself, there was no one nearby to call if you needed help. And miners often called the drill the Widowmaker. The Calumet and Hecla security guards were ordered to keep the strikers off company property and tensions were high. About a month into the strike, a group of 10 strikers were drinking beer in view of the guards at a nearby park. As one does when <laughs> striking, sit and drink some beer. On their way out, the strikers cut across company property and were followed by the guards. They got into a fight at nearby Seaverville boarding house where guards tried to arrest the men. One of the strikers was beaten with clubs and a striker threw a bowling pin at the guards. Not sure why he had one, but... <laughs> one of the guards fired his gun, causing others to fire. And since the boarding house was cramped, the guards ended up killing two Croatian immigrants who had nothing to do with the men the guards were trying to arrest. These deaths became a symbol for the strikers, and 5,000 people showed up at the funeral. Now it gets worse. <laughs> so in December, the strikes were still ongoing. The Women's Auxiliary wanted to plan a Christmas party for the children on Christmas Eve on the second floor of the Italian Hall. Around 700 miners, their wives, and children were in attendance. In the middle of the party, someone yelled, Fire! Causing a stampede of adults and children to the exit, which was a narrow staircase with the door at the bottom, which unfortunately opened inward. It made the door impossible to open with all of the crushing bodies. It was said that some people in the beginning were able to get out, but once the doors shut, everyone was basically stuck there. At the end, 73 people, mostly children, were trampled to death or suffocated in the panic. While it was never found who yelled fire, there wasn't any evidence that there was a fire. Blame was placed on strike breakers, as that had been ongoing since July. Some felt it was in retaliation for the strike since it was full of striking miners and their families. Some witnesses claimed to see a man wearing a Citizens Alliance button. And the Citizens Alliance was a group of local businesses who wanted to settle the strike. But it could never be proven. The bodies of those killed were brought to a temporary morgue. Uh, miraculously, someone noticed a hand move on one of the children. They were resuscitated and recovered but that was the only miracle that Christmas Eve. Most of the funerals took place on December 28th with the six local churches at capacity for the funerals. I got a couple different numbers for children that died. Uh, one book said 
62 children were buried, but an article from MLive said it was 59. And most of those were buried in Calumet's Lakeview Cemetery. And so many white children's caskets were needed that they had to be obtained from nearby communities. It took 100 miners to dig the graves, and the funeral procession was two miles long. <laughs> the strike was eventually settled on Easter Sunday in 1914. However, by then, thousands had left for the Ford factories in Detroit, where they would make $2 more an hour and try to leave behind the awful memories of what happened that Christmas Eve in 1913. And all that remains now of the Italian Hall is this um, arched doorway with a memorial plaque. And I'm going to put a picture of that in the show notes. So it's a very sad story of the miners' strike and Italian Hall disaster of 1913. Some of this information is from Wikipedia, Murder in Machines Upper Peninsula by Sunny Longtime, and the MLive article, and Blood on the Mitten by Tom Carr. Mm. It's terrible. Right? And the crazy thing is they never found out who yelled fire or why somebody thought there may have been a small fire but there was like never any evidence of it and uh you know there's just a lot of there was a lot of accusations at the time but yeah nobody ever came forward you didn't know if it's because they were one of the people that were crushed and died in the stampede or if there was something malicious by it behind it or if they were mistaken and didn't want to come forward as saying it was their fault right but it's really sad yeah i'd say Alrighty, my story today is on richard clary richard norbert clary jr was born on may 18 1960 in weisbaden west germany to Richard Clary Sr., an American officer from Kalamazoo, stationed there, and his wife, German wife, Hildy. Richard Sr. was barely home to take care of the children, so Richard and his brother Paul, who was born in 1963, were doted on by Hildy, who let them do whatever they wanted. Due to all of this, Richard became a delinquent child who hated going to school and preferred to spend his time drinking and abusing drugs, particularly LSD. Oh, an interesting choice. The, yeah. The continual drug and alcohol abuse, along with numerous head injuries that he sustained in fights, caused his mental health to go downhill. He stated that in his dreams he began to hear voices of well-known Nazi figures who told him that he had a mission to kill all Americans after he had read the Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. As a teen, he moved in with an aunt in Oregon before moving to his father's hometown of Kalamazoo. At age 19, Clary and his 28-year-old accomplice, Flavio Langs, were planning on robbing an unsuspecting man. Their victim would be Jack Stewart, who picked the two up in Kalamazoo on December 18, 1979. After they entered his car, they stole his wallet and stabbed Stewart in the back, then pushed him out of the vehicle before speeding off. Luckily, Stewart's injuries were non-fatal, and he was able to call the police, telling them that his attackers were breaking through the roadblocks on the I-94, just outside Benton Harbor. Clary and Langs were ultimately shot and chased by several patrols, driving at about 110 miles per hour for about 15 miles. 
just after going down the expressway, Clary crashed the car into a utility pool after trying to avoid hitting an oncoming vehicle, which burst into flames, and they had to be rescued by the police officers who arrived at the scene. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Richard and Flavio were both sent to Bronson Methodist Hospital, where the former had to be treated for head injuries and an LSD overdose. After being released from the hospital, they were both imprisoned for a few years before being released. On January 3, 1984, Clary was paroled from the Kalamazoo Correctional Center, where he had served due to charges of breaking and entering. On April 15, 36-year-old Robert Baranski, an associate of Clary's, left a local bar and began to give Clary a ride. When they were alone, Clary shot Robert and later dumped his body at a pier in South Haven. After dumping the body, Clary went and picked up his friend, 17-year-old John Asher, and they planned to drive down to California. Along the drive, Richard lost control of the vehicle and crashed into a ditch near an I-94 freeway west rest stop outside of New Buffalo. They needed another vehicle, so they creeped up to the truck of 59-year-old Floyd Holmes, who was traveling who was a traveling salesman from Santa Monica, California, that had been visiting family in Detroit and shot him in the head. They were unsuccessful in starting up the truck, so they then sent sights on another truck, one belonging to 28-year-old Dean R. Baltima, a man from Wibbledon, North Dakota, who was towing an antique car that he was planning on selling in Owasso. Richard shot Dean, discarding the body afterwards. This time they were successful in starting up the truck, but not long after, they got stuck in the mud at a rest stop. Clary fled on foot, leaving Asher behind, who was quickly arrested on the spot. More than 30 officers from both Michigan and Indiana were sent to search for Clay. Utilizing police helicopters and bloodhounds, searching through abandoned buildings for any signs of Clary. He was ultimately arrested by authorities in the attic of a garage in LaPorte, Indiana, a few hours later. Wow. That's a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole lot. The day after his arrest, Clary confessed to the killing and dumping of Baranski, indicating that he had dumped the body in a lake near South Haven. He was arraigned on murder charges for the deaths of Holmes and Baltima, while Asher was held for carrying a concealed weapon, with his bond set at $25,000. In the meantime, a search was conducted to find Baranski's body, which was found a month later washed up on a beach in southwestern Michigan. Before his trial, Clary was ordered to undertake a competency hearing at the Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ypsilanti, where he had been examined by researchers Elisa P. Bendak and Russell C. Petrella over several days. It was revealed that while Clary had great resentment towards Americans because of his rough childhood, I mean, like, rough childhood, his mother let him get away with everything and his father was just barely home. There are kids have much worse, but okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. They, you know. So rough, sir. So a, rough. You have a rough life. You, you don't necessarily have to start <laughs> killing people and stealing their vehicles. You know. <laughs> exactly. Um, because of his rough childhood and a girlfriend of his becoming pregnant by an American. He was aware of his actions and was reasonably intelligent. According to Bendek, he was aware that he could plead insanity, but wouldn't do so because he didn't think he had an unsound mind. After being ruled as competent to stand trial, his trial was set for December. During the trial, more than 50 people testified. 
Among them was psychologist Leonard Donk. Great name. <laughs> That's a good last name. Donk. <laughs> Donk. Who said that Clary suffered from an array of disorders, most prominently periodic schizophrenia. Another was Raymond Matthews, who said that on the night before Holmes and Baltimore's killings, he had been approached by Clary, who tried to break into his truck. After he failed to do so, he shot at Matthews, but missed. Hours later, he claimed that he had seen a blood-soaked man lying behind a white van, who appeared to be the same assailant from before. This was further proven with a videotape confession, where Clary confessed to the murders. When he took the stand, Richard claimed to have done some soul-searching, and had finally realized that he needed help. Oh, now you do. <laughs> I mean, now you do, sir. I've, now you do. I've been caught. I need help. That's it. That's it exactly. On December 21st, 1984, he was found guilty of the Holmes and Baltimore murders and received mandatory life imprisonment sentences, which he received without any expression on his face. So he knew, this is what gets me. He did soul searching and he needs help and he was so wrong. But you receive this without any expression on your face. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Two months later, Clary was put on a second trial for the murder of Baranski. Clary pled guilty to the murder, but did so with a diminished capacity plea, receiving another sentence of life imprisonment. Two years after his conviction... Clary appealed two of his murder convictions, but the appeal, the appeal was rejected by the court. Richard Clary remains incarcerated at the Ionia Correctional Facility. According to Leonard Donk's report, Clary was driven by the belief that the blood spilled by his victims would be for a better life. And he confessed to a total of 150 murders. What? Claiming to have killed people since he was 15 years old and still living in West Germany. What the hell? But he needs help now. Yeah. Yeah. He also claimed that he felt excited and detached during the murders. And since he followed Hitler's doctrines, he often targeted Jews, blacks, Asians, and other minorities. Of course. Wow. His confessions were investigated by many states along the West Coast but none of them were matched to any open murder cases. Donk described Clary in his report as psychotic, paranoid, psychopathic, and schizophrenic, and said he appeared to have suffered brain damage from the years of drug and alcohol abuse. Donk also noted his belief that Clary did kill more people than that he was convicted of, so Donk believes him that he killed more, but there's no proof to that. Yeah. Ended up finding all of this on Wikipedia, so that was nice. <laughs> You'd have to go like all the way back to Germany and look for right. any cases. Just like, the... From that time period, yeah. yeah. But of course, he went after minorities and. <sighs> oh, that's so crazy. Yeah. When we say watch out for the crazies, <laughs> that's the we kind mean it. you mean. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, I never expected. I just thought it was going to be, you know, the story about a guy who killed three people. But no, apparently there's more. Yeah. Supposedly. And that's crazy, too, because there's supposed to be a lot of people that ended up at Ionia because that's the same place that the other murder I talked about before. Royal Oak Sniper. 
Mm-hmm. Gary Addison Taylor. Yeah, that's where he ended up, too. I wonder how many. <laughs> that had to just be full of murderers, that place. Yeah, I think it's most like Kalamazoo area, Grand Rapids area. Ionia is not that far off from Grand Rapids. Oh. So I think a lot in that area, yeah, there's going to be major. South Haven. Mm-hmm. And then, didn't you say one in Ypsilanti, too? Yes, that's where um, the center was that he went to get checked. Yep. Was that? Yep, because that's where Taylor was, too. They're kind of hitting the same places. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep, he had to undertake the competency hearing at the Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ypsilanti. So. Yeah. Where Taylor was too. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> so, like, you never realize how much is going on or went on in Michigan until you look back and actually look for it. Yeah. Or still going on. Like, how many people kill somebody and get sent somewhere like True that? that? Actually, nowadays, I think they mostly just end up in prisons and just yeah. kind of put in with the population. <laughs> oh. Well, what's your hell yes for this week? What's something good? Um, I'm trying to think. What's something exciting? Oh, <laughs> at work. It was really funny. We were, we were closing early, so I was given an extra table in a different section because they were trying to clear out our wait list before everything got closed down. And the guy that had been serving in that section had to transfer over to to go because to go was staying open but everything else was shutting down so he gave me one of his tables there's a four type of guys that were absolute assholes just rude nothing was right just just oh, being geez. dicks just to be dicks you know what i mean like and i i did everything nice like and then they still yeah they had something in their food that shouldn't have been there and so i like try to take things back and I mean at one point I was like oh my gosh I'm so sorry and he's like I don't even think I want to eat here anymore and I bring the food back and because he said I don't even want to eat here anymore I just grabbed a manager I was like this is the table this is what was found go out there so she goes out there and I'm taking care of stuff and then she comes back and she's like they want to talk to you and I'm like why and she's like they said you didn't even offer to replace it and I'm like the guy literally told me he didn't want to eat here like (laughs) what is going on yeah. He ended up leaving. His friends ended up staying. They were still rude. Just n- this and that and this. Just always finding something to nitpick at. Something in great. I'm busting my butt for this table. They still ended up tipping me $22 in cash. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I was like, hell yeah. I'll take that, <laughs> I'll take that tip after dealing with you guys. Maybe one of them felt bad after. That's that's what somebody said. They're like, they probably knew that they were being unnecessarily hard on you. Yeah. And just tip nice anyways. I'm like, well, I hope so. Because, God, they were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take that tip and just deal with it. I wasn't so angry anymore after receiving that. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Um, right. We're going away this weekend. And I'm, I'm sad you're not here for the girls' weekends that we do at the I- cabin. <laughs> I know. I miss the girls' weekend so bad. I know. We're leaving. Um, we were going to go Friday, but then my mom was just, 
we can leave Thursday night. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I guess we're going to have an extra night there. <laughs> it's not it's not too bad, but I usually end up sleeping on either a mattress on the floor or on an air mattress. Neither of which are super comfy, but... Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous of Grandma. She gets that room to herself. I'm just like, dang Of course it. she does. <laughs> she bougie. I know. <laughs> she does this thing. She's like, I'm going, but I'm taking the good bed. And we're all just like, dang it. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're oldest. You get the best bed. We understand. Right. I don't think it would be good to have her 93-year-old self sleep on the floor. <laughs> no, she probably wouldn't be able to get up. I struggle. <laughs> the woman can still run circles around me, though, and it's so funny. Right? We'll have... go into a store, and she's just gone. And I'm like, I've got little legs, lady, and I want to go, I'm old, I can't keep up. But then I'm like, this woman <laughs> is 93 years old. She'll look at me and laugh if I say that. Yeah, she has. She'll like be like... She said it to me. She's like, come on, old lady, hurry up. I'm like, the disrespect. And then she just laughs. I'm like, listen, rude. I hope I am still as in good shape and as quirky as her when I get to be her age. Seriously. She is an inspiration. That lady. I don't understand. The woman never goes to the hospital unless absolutely, like, dire. She... Has eaten unhealthy, diabetic, has all this, but just... Yeah, she still gets up. She's like, nope, I'm doing stuff. She's got that attitude where... <laughs> that extra spunk that I wish I had. Yeah. I'm not going to sit here. I'm going to do these things. And yeah. That's exactly it. If, if she sits for too long, she's upset. Yeah. <laughs> Which is complete opposite of my other grandma. That's like, everyone do things for me. I, I think she'd be in, like, a motorized wheelchair if she could. Just she never had to do anything. And she wants, like, servants. And it's hilarious. <laughs> so I, have this, I have this complete opposite spectrums of do everything like, for me. And then we have our grandmother that's like, no, I'm doing it myself. <laughs> that's, that's so funny is it's like one is me and one is what I want to be. Like, I want to be grandma where she's, like, running around and so full of energy in life but i'd be the one that would be like you know what dang it i'm old i deserve to have things done for me i want to lay here and do nothing help me <laughs> <I'd probably laughs> be realistic here <laughs> yeah so i just have to remember as the older i get is just to keep moving because if you stop you're probably just gonna stay that way like they always say with, if you keep your face in that position, it's going to stay in that position. Yeah. Feel that way with my body. If I sit too long, it's going to, it's going to stay there. Is that a physics thing? An object at rest stays at rest. That, that will be me when I'm old. Mm -hmm. Like if I, if I stop, I'm not getting up again. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Yes, thank you. And be sure to watch out for the crazies. Stay safe. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.